So far in our exposition of John 14, we have looked at two of the promises Jesus issued to His troubled disciples during the Last Supper. We looked at the promise of His spiritual presence after He returns to the Father. We saw that in verse 1. We looked at the promise that He is going to prepare a place for His disciples in His Father's house, verses 2 through 4. That's where we focused last Sunday. In the next section, we will discover or analyze, study Jesus' third promise, the promise of the right path. Please take your Bibles and turn to John 14. We will be looking at verses 5 through 11 today. John 14, verses 5 through 11. That will be our text of study this morning. At this point in the narrative, two disciples interrupt Jesus to express their confusion. In other words, they've been sitting there listening to Him unpack these promises and saying the things that He's been saying during the supper, and and two of them interrupt Jesus right in the middle of His discourse and express their confusion. And one was confused about where Jesus was going confused about that and confused about how he and the other disciples could get there later on. And the other was confused about Jesus' personhood, who he is. And as we will see, Jesus graciously responds by clearly laying out uh, where he is going, how to get there, that's the third promise, and he also graciously illustrates or further illustrates his divine identity. In other words, he sets the record straight for these disciples. And we're going to pick it up at verse 5. John 14, verse 5. I'll read the text. Here's the first interruption. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? In other words, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way to where you're going if we don't know where you're going? This is what Thomas says. And the first thing that we notice is the first uh, disciple to interrupt Jesus was who? Thomas. His name is Thomas. And he certainly claims to not know where Jesus is going after Jesus has told them explicitly. He doesn't know where Jesus is going. He doesn't understand. He's confused about where Jesus is going. uh, And he's confused equally about the way to his destination. And I think that his response is really bizarre at this juncture because Jesus had told the group just a few minutes earlier that he was returning to his father's house to prepare a place for them. Verse 2. So right after Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going or how to get there. So this is very perplexing. How do, uh, did you not hear what Jesus just said? Now, some say that the disciples, especially Thomas, were so distraught over Jesus' departure that they were unable to focus on these comforting promises that he was presenting to them. In other words, yeah, in a sense of it, they didn't hear what he was saying. They were too emotionally broken to actually listen, to really listen and and consider what he was saying. Now, this is certainly a possibility. I'm sure that every one of us has been in a situation where somebody was telling us something and we really didn't hear what they were saying because we were so distraught over our situation. I think we would all agree that During difficult times, our emotions have the ability and power to sort of drown out God's truth and promises. Amen? And sometimes your situation can be so harsh that, you know, even when you have another believer there helping to comfort you and and reciting God's promises to you, you just can't really hear what they're saying. And you feel like you don't, you feel as if you don't have the ability to believe or latch on to those promises in that moment. And so this is certainly a possibility here with with Thomas. And Jesus just says, I'm going to the Father's house to prepare a place for you. And he doesn't hear any of that because his heart is is just overly broken. He's got that terrasso, right? Emotional turmoil is the Greek translation. But I think that there was more to it here with Thomas, that is. 
I don't think it was just that he was emotionally heartbroken and couldn't hear. I think that there was something else playing out with him. When he was first introduced to Jesus, he immediately doubted Jesus' messiahship because of where Jesus lived. Jesus' first encounter with Thomas wasn't a positive one because of Thomas. He was introduced to Jesus as the Messiah, and he said, Huh, seriously? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? How could the Messiah possibly come from Nazareth? This is Thomas's first interaction with Jesus. It's not a good way to meet your maker. Can anything good come from Nazareth, Jesus? You're saying the Messiah and you're from, from Nazareth? It's, it's not a good place. It's Erlemart. It's, uh, you know, it's Denaire. Dan, Dan's like, you don't talk about my hometown. You don't even live in it. You live on the outskirts. John 1, 46, right? After the resurrection... Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room, and it was Thomas who doubted that Jesus had returned. He wasn't there the first night that Jesus appeared, and the disciples told him about it, and then he came back another night, and he just did not believe that Jesus had come back from the dead, nor did he go into the upper room and visit with them. This is what he says in response to, hey, Jesus has come. He declares, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound on his side. John 20, verse 25. So you have two examples of of Thomas, how he responds to the Lord. And they're both negative examples or responses. And I think what you see here in verse 5, actually what you're seeing here in verse 5 is is Thomas doubting the sufficiency of Jesus' testimony and word. Thomas was a doubter. This is what he's known for. How would you like to be remembered as someone who just lived with constant doubt and messed up your Lord several times through your doubts? In fact, where do you think the phrase doubting Thomas came from? It comes right from the Bible from this guy. You'll hear that today. Don't be a doubting Thomas. This person that says this has never even read the Bible. And yet they'll use the phrase, don't be a doubting Thomas. They're referencing this Thomas. Poor Thomas. This is where we get that phrase. So I think that in the midst of this situation here, Thomas is is gone back to his default mode, which is doubt, to doubt the sufficiency of what Jesus says. In other words, he, he really just doesn't believe the Lord's testimony. It's not a matter of not hearing him clearly. It's You're saying you're going to go do this, this, and this. Man, I just don't believe it. We we don't know where you're going, and he's speaking on behalf of the rest of them. If I were in the group, I'd be like, don't don't include me in this. I probably would uh, be doubting as well as him, but, but for the most part, I think this is a doubt situation because that's his trademark. He's doubting. And then some say that Thomas and the rest of the disciples had no solid theological training on the subject of afterlife. There's a strong possibility that this could be the rationale or motivation for why he's questioning Jesus. Apparently, first century Jews did not put much emphasis on what happens to a person after they die. It's just not, it's not a focus in Judaism. The focus in Judaism is on the Messiah coming back and conquering all their enemies and establishing His kingdom. They don't talk a whole lot or think much on the idea of what happens when I pass away. They think about the resurrection that will occur in the future, but not what immediately transpires when a person passes away. So it's quite possible that these men were literally baffled by what Jesus was saying. They had no concept of afterlife. You're telling us that you're going to go away to the Father's house and prepare a place for us. How is that going to play out? How are we going to get there later on? We have to die to get there? I mean, what are you talking about? This isn't a focus in Judaism. So I think this is a possibility, but I'm highly skeptical because when we study the Gospels, when we examine the Gospels, we see that Jesus talked about eternal life and hell more than any other subject. From the moment Jesus opened his mouth and began to preach, he was talking about eternal he was talking about what happens when you die. He talked about eternal life, he talked about eternal death, he talked about the kingdom is at hand. 
Jesus had spent three years preaching the gospel in front of these guys and preparing them for that moment when they breathe their last breath. So I find it hard to believe that they're just completely ignorant on the subject. Although it's a possibility. In my opinion, lack of theological training or ignorance really wasn't the issue. I just think what we have here is a classic combination of anxiousness over the news that Jesus is leaving and then the doubt that kind of comes in. Whenever we have anxiousness over a subject, usually it's doubt that creates the anxiousness or fear that creates anxiousness and doubt. I mean, fear is really the antithesis, opposite of faith. Doubt is the opposite of faith. And so I think what these men were doing at this point, especially Thomas, was that he was just racked with this grief and anxiousness over Jesus' departure and flooded with fear, because what are the implications for us? What does this mean? Is this going to end? What are we going to do after this point? If you leave us, doubts kind of flowed in, and they were doubting even... I mean, Jesus hasn't even gone yet. He's right in front of them. And yet they're already doubting what He's saying, and I think that's what it was. Though it could be a combination of the three examples I gave. I think it's safe to say that we all experience anxiousness and doubts when calamity strikes. We tend to to think of ourselves as being strong in the faith and all of these things, but we're usually entertaining that notion about ourselves when life is going pretty smooth. But the moment that something strikes, all of a sudden, you start questioning your faith. You start questioning the sufficiency of God's Word. You start questioning the promises of Jesus and all of the promises of Scripture. You, you, you do. I mean, it's easy to say things when bad things aren't happening. It's easy to take a strong position. But then you get a cancer diagnosis and you feel like the Lord has left you. But then your spouse does the unthinkable and you think the Lord has left you. But then your employer does the unthinkable and hands you a pink slip and you think that God doesn't have your welfare in mind, your financial welfare in mind. We all experience anxiousness and doubts when calamity strikes. And the best thing we can do, the best thing we can do during these times is spend much time in prayer because that calms the heart. The best thing we can do is focus our attention on the Lord's promises in John 14 and throughout the Bible. You know, what is it that usually leads to the anxiousness and doubts and fears? It's what we're thinking about. We have to retrain ourselves to not think about our circumstances too much and to entertain all the hypotheticals and what-ifs. What we need to do is train ourselves to get into the Scripture where God's truth is powerful and a double-edged sword and, it, and all the promises are there. We need to train ourselves to go to the source of our strength and joy, the Lord's presence through prayer and His instruction in His Word. We must remember that the spiritual presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit is a great source for comfort for us. In fact, I think it's the greatest. So, instead of following the culture and popping a pill because that's what the culture has trained us to do. The minute that you feel uneasy or anxious or out of sorts, normalcy is gone. We go right to the medicine cabinet and we get a zanny or whatever it is that's been prescribed to us and we pop one of those. It's a chill pill and then we just sit there and we chill out. Meanwhile, we're just escaping reality. This culture tells us to pop a pill. I say pop open your Bible and read. I say pop over to a godly friend's house and get some encouragement. Right? Pop open an open channel in prayer and start praying to your heavenly Father in the Spirit in the name of Jesus and ask Him to calm your soul and your heart because He can do it. He can do it. Uh, you're talking to a, you're hearing, listening to a guy that spent a, a great portion of his life, one-third, nearly one-third of my entire life, I'm almost 50, medicated on antidepressants. 
and, and, and taken the uh, generic form of Xanax whenever, uh, you know, I got a little twinge. Whoa, better go pop a pill. And, and over time, you know, we don't realize how habit-forming these things are and how destructive they can be. And as Christians, pills ought not be the first thing we pop. In fact, after I got saved, one of the first things I did was jettison all the medicine. Bye. Just got rid of it. I didn't need it anymore. I had a new source for comfort. I had a new source for calming myself, seeking the Lord. And maybe some of you in the audience today in the congregation are saying, well, you know, that's all fine and dandy in theory, but you don't understand how bad my situation is. Well, maybe you don't understand how great your God is. And you just need to go to a pill. Do we realize that when we go to a pill, we're following the culture's norms and not necessarily the Scripture. I'm not saying that, you know, if you have an illness or whatever, there's medicine, sometimes God, sometimes God uses medicine to help us and to heal us in these things. No doubt He works through those means at times. But I don't think that He wants us to try to escape what's going on in our lives by popping a pill. He desires to be the Lord of our entire life, our emotional life, our spiritual life, our physical life. Maybe, maybe you're hooked on something because you just take it all the time. Have you thought about that? Does that frighten you? No. You see, these men are sitting in this room, and they are peaking in their anxiety. How many of you in this room have ever had an anxiety attack? It's one of the most terrifying things you'll ever experience. It's terrifying, isn't it? Now, I have to be the first one to admit, I, the, when I feel that coming on, the first inclination is to take a pill because I know it's going to get rid of it. Anxiety attacks can be terrifying, and I think these men are so anxious in this room. What did Jesus do? Like a street pharmacist, open up his coat and say, place your orders? And he's got just, you know, prescriptions lined up. Oh, this will help you with this, and this will help you with this. No. He gives them promises that are as sure as He is sure, that are based on His divinity. These promises will take someone who is in a bitter anxiety attack and calm them if you focus on them. Got to get off the pills. It shouldn't be our default, guys. It's not the way of the Lord for us. And I'll tell you what, if you need help, I'd love to help you. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's you. God can help you with your problems. He can help you with your trouble. He can help you with your anxiousness and your worries and all of these things. He can. He really can. He really can. That's a promise from Jesus. So Jesus is continuing to work with them here, but Thomas intervenes, and he's acting as if he has no idea where Jesus is going, or how they can get there later. But I think doubt was a part of it. The anxiousness was a part of it. I don't think it was just standard issue ignorance. Something's playing out here. And Jesus knows all things and knows exactly what's going on in their hearts and in their minds at this moment. And so His response, as we continue, His response is perfect for their situation. What we're about to read. It, it identifies the issue and breaks it down in such a way that it's specific to each of these guys, especially Thomas. Verse 6, this is Jesus' response to Thomas. And this might be one of the most popular verses in your Bible, next to John 3.16. I think that uh, John 14.6 is right up there at the top of the list. I've never seen this one flown at a football game. I'd pay someone to do it. To me, this is a stronger verse for the essentialness of who Jesus is in salvation. John 3.16 just talks about God's love and sending His Son. That's beautiful. That's amazing. This is so specific, you can't miss this. If you miss this, this is why this isn't flown at football games, because this is offensive. This verse is offensive to natural man or to those who are pursuing another way to get to heaven. Here's Jesus' response to Thomas. You don't know, you don't know where I'm going. You, you don't know where I'm going. You don't know how to get there. Let me help you understand something, 
Thomas. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And listen to this. No one comes to the Father except through me. Plain and simple. Let's analyze it. Let's break it down. The first thing I want you to notice is the phrase, I am. I am. Jesus said to him, I am, dot, dot, dot. This is the sixth I am statement in John's gospel. Jesus used it to link himself to God when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but God said this through the bush to Moses. He said something of this nature. Moses, tell the Israelites in Egypt, you have been sent by me. I am. I am is a name of God, a title for God. Translates as Yahweh. I am. Tell the Israelites in Egypt that you have been sent by I am. So when Jesus says I am, what is he doing? He's declaring his oneness with God and deity, the fact that he is God. He is also associating, this is so important, he's also associating himself with Israel's physical deliverance out of Egypt, which foreshadows the spiritual deliverance he provides through his death, burial, and resurrection, and the future physical deliverance of the saints when he returns. So when Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses tap on your door, if they still do, unless you've been blacklisted. When they tap on your door or try to connect with you in the mall, I was in the mall the other day, don't ask me why, it'll be the last time. I hadn't been there in 20 years, I'm not going for another 20, I put in my time. But I was in the mall and there's a table set up and there's Mormons right there and all these guys walking around with these badges on that say elder and they were all like 12, that's just weird to have elders that are 12. Boy. Next time you have a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness, and they will do it right in front of you, they deny the deity of Jesus Christ, you take them to the I Am statements in John and take them to Exodus 3, where God plainly says, tell the Israelites that I Am sent you. I Am who I Am sent you. This is a great defense of the deity of Jesus Christ. A great defense. And you take them to that. Now, they'll probably continue to deny it, but that's okay. You put the Scripture before them, and their issue is with Scripture and God, and God is their judge, you're not. Now, let's analyze the rest of Jesus' statement here. And it's, it's very, very simple. It's not complex. It's not theologically deep. I think there's depth to it, but what Jesus is saying is pretty, pretty simple. What He's intending to say to these men is, is pretty simple, simple truths, although I think you could analyze them forever. When He says, I am the way, He means... The Father's house is to be reached through my mediation and atonement. Faith in me is the key to heaven. He who believes in me is on the right path. In other words, I am the way to heaven. If you want to go to heaven, you must go through my person and work by grace through faith. You don't know where I'm going? Well, you don't know how to get there? You don't know how to get there, Thomas? I am the way, so you come through me. This is what he's saying. It's very simple. We don't want to bog it down with huge explanation. Very simple. When he says, I am the truth, he means the root of all knowledge is to know me. I am the whole truth. I can satisfy every desire of the human mind. Truth is what actually satisfies every desire of the human mind. Fallen sinners don't understand this. I didn't for a great time. But to know the truth manifested in Jesus Christ, who is the living Word of God, is to satisfy the mind or to have the mind satisfied. He's basically saying, I am the truth. I am the true Messiah to whom all revelation, all Scripture points. He who really knows me knows enough to take him safely to heaven. In other words, you don't have to know everything about Jesus to go to heaven. You don't have to have all of the mysterious doctrines unpacked. You have to know why he came, what he did, and you have to know that it's by grace through faith, and you have to put those things, invest those things into him and trust in him alone. 
I am the truth. I am the truth. In other words, I am the truth about how to get to heaven, how to get to the Father's house. I'm not just the way. I am also the truth about heaven and the truth about all things. It is found in me. Why? Because all Scripture points to me. This is what Jesus is saying. When He says, I am the life, He means I am the root and fountain of all life, the giver of everlasting life or eternal life, and the redeemer from physical death. He who knows and believes in me has spiritual life now and will have a glorious life in my Father's house hereafter. This is what he's saying. I am the way to heaven, I am the truth about heaven, and I am the life in that I can give you life so that you can go to heaven. Because guess what? Dead sinners don't go to heaven. Only those who have been made alive by me through grace and faith, only they go to heaven. I am the one that gives them life so that they can stand in the very presence of the Father in His house so that they can have their inheritance. This is what Jesus is seeking to convey, unpack for them. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. It's a great verse. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus added a clause in the second half of verse 6. What did He say? No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I just have to tell you and pause. This is the part that really gets people fired up. I think, generically speaking, most people would be okay with He's the truth, you know, He's the way, truth, and life. That's not all that offensive. What you're telling me is that I can go to heaven through Jesus. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. Okay, that's, that's cool. It's the clause that gets people fired up. It's when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what spins people out. That's what creates the anger and the hostility. Here he clearly teaches that he is not merely the way to our Father's home in heaven, but that there is no other way, and that men must either go to heaven by his atonement or not go there at all. That's what he's saying. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, meaning unless you come through me, you don't go to the Father. I am the only way to Him. There's no other way. There's no other path. There was no other route. There's no other Messiah. There's no other guru. There's no works righteousness. Nothing else can get you there except me. I'm not sure Thomas was ready for this response. Yeah, I was just simply asking where you're going or how we can get there. Lord, have mercy, you just gave me a lecture. Well, I think Jesus wants to be very clear on this truth because this is one of those truths that heaven and hell rests on. This determines where you go. If you don't understand that He is the way, truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, you're in big trouble. But if you do understand that and you believe that, you're not. I like what John Calvin and R.C. Sproul wrote. Calvin says, He is the way because He leads us to the Father, and He is the truth and the life because in Him we perceive the Father. He's saying, apart from Jesus, you can't even understand or perceive the Father. You can't even conceive of Him. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. He's the exact imprint of His nature. Hebrews, it says. He came to show us the Father and the way to the Father. I love what He says here. He's the way to the Father. He's the truth, but He's the life in that in Christ we can perceive the Father. The only way that we can know the Father, entertain an actual real thought about the Father, is in and through Jesus Christ. In other words, if people are pondering God apart from Jesus, they're pondering an idol. They're not pondering the God of heaven, the God of the Bible. R.C. Sproul wrote, and this is tremendous as well, this is not merely an exceptional statement from the lips of Jesus. What he said here is consistent with a theme that runs through the entire New Testament, that God has provided a road, a path, or a way of redemption, which was His plan from all eternity, 
and that the divine Lagos, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, you know, Jesus Himself, took on Himself a human nature to make that way. This is a phenomenal statement. It was as if Jesus had said to Thomas, You want to know where I'm going? I'm going to the Father in heaven. You want to know how to get there? You must come through me because I am the only way. In simplest terms, that's what Jesus has just said to this confused disciple. Now, what's amazing to me is how confusing this basic, generic, easiest of all truths to understand has become so clouded up in the church today. Today, men are preaching a weird combination of faith and works and these sorts of things. This isn't just in Roman Catholic circles where this is happening. It's happening in Pentecostal circles. It's happening in regular church circles where it's a weird combination of faith and morality. Or First century believers really understood this generic fundamental truth. And I don't know why we can't get our mind around it. It's pretty simple. We, we can't go to heaven unless it's through Jesus. How much simpler can you get? First century believers got this, but believers today don't seem to understand it. Maybe they've been subjected to bad teaching. I, I don't know. Maybe they're just not real believers. I don't know. I can't see their hearts, but there's some weird stuff going on. First century Christians taught this doctrine explicitly, so explicitly that they became known as the way. They preached that Jesus is the only way, and the early church, before they were called Christians or anything else, they were called the way because of how they stuck to this doctrine. When they preached the gospel, they would tell people, you can only go to heaven through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. This is what they preached in the first century. So much so that they became known as the way. Acts 9, verse 2, 19, verse 9, and 23, 22, 4, 24, 14, and 24, 22. All of these verses present the early church as the way. Why? Because they preached Christ is the only way. We got to get back to this, people. If we've deviated from this, we've got to get back to it. It's so imperative that we do because there is no other way. God has blessed us exponentially at this church. Our elders seem to get this and haven't deviated in the seven years I've been a part of this church. Praise God. Look at verse 7. Jesus continues, If you had known me, speaking to Thomas again, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do, not know, you do know him. Pardon me. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He's speaking to Thomas here, and you is plural, so he's speaking to the entire group. In other words, he's not just addressing Thomas. The idea here is that if the disciples had fully grasped who Jesus is, and I'm not talking about all the intricacies of who he is and breaking down all of his divine attributes. I'm talking about if they just known him as, as being God and sent from the Father and coming from heaven, if they'd known basic truths and grasped further his identity, they would have known the Father as well. Because if you know Jesus, you know the Father. Knowing Jesus is knowing the Father, right? Jesus has reiterated this over and over and over. John 6, 39, chapter 8, 29, chapter 10, verse 30, chapter 13, verse 20, over and over and over, Jesus has said, I and the Father am one, are one, I came from the Father, He sent me, He is in me, I am in Him. In him. This, this, is, this is what Jesus taught the disciples. If, if you know Jesus, you know the Father. And, and if they had grasped who He is in this moment, Again, we're not exactly sure why they couldn't at this moment. There were times where they did, especially Peter when he declared that Jesus is the Christ. Obviously, he's from the Father. For some reason, they don't get it here. But if they had, they'd known that Jesus and the Father are one. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. That's a remarkable truth. I've ne never met the Father face to face. I've never even met Jesus face to face. I long for that day. 
But I've met Jesus by faith, which means I've met the Father. I know Jesus and I know the Father. If you're in Christ, you know the Father as well. And you might think, well, I'd really like to bolster and build up that relationship because I interact with Jesus a whole lot, but I don't interact with the Father. Well, every interaction you have with Jesus is an interaction with the Father and the Holy Spirit. You have a relationship with one, you have a relationship with all. And his statement here was nothing less than a claim to full deity and equality with the Father. He is the way to God because He is God. Think of it like that. He is not merely a manifestation of God. He is God manifested in human flesh. Some of those oneness Pentecostals will tell you he's an emanation or some kind of a manifestation of God in some weird way, but he's not actually God. No, he is God. He is God manifested in human flesh. God became man in Jesus, right? He's not merely a manifestation of God. He is God manifested. He is the Word become flesh. John 1, 14, right? He is the Word, eternal Word of God, become flesh. Not to mention in John over and over and over, he is what? I am. I am God. John 6:35, John 8:12, John 10, 7 through 14, John 11:25, John 14:6, right? In the final example, John 15:1 through 5. Again, take those Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses to all those texts. When he says, I am, he is saying, I am God. There's no escaping it. You can deny it all you want, but it's true. It says what it says. My paraphrase of verse 7b, understand, and he's saying this to the group, Thomas in particular, but the whole group, understand from this time forward that in knowing me, you know the Father, and in seeing me, you see the Father. Okay? This is what Jesus is telling them. You know me, you know the Father. You see me, you see the Father. There's no disconnection between us, even though they're two distinct people of God, which is, again, I, I don't know how this works, but they are fully God, and yet they are God three in one, which is a remarkable truth. They're three distinct personality. They're not even three distinct personalities of God. They're all the same God, but manifested. In, they're not even manifested. I don't even know how to describe the Trinity. Do you? It just baffles my mind. Same God in three. Think of it like that. Look at that. I got confused. Why? Because it's a confusing doctrine. It's a confusing reality. But if you know the Son, you know the Father. That's what he's saying. Now let's look at verse 8. Oh, man. This guy's got my name. Putz. Verse 8, Philip said to him, could he at least spell it with two L's? Philip said to him, this is just disastrous. Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. This is one of those things when you say it and it's, going, it's flying out of your mouth and you immediately realize how stupid it was and you're trying to grab the air and get the words back and shove them back down your throat. How does this come out of his mouth? Well, it did. The second, this is the second interruption and it was caused by my brother, Philip the Not Great. <laughs> Apparently, he was not content with indirect knowledge of the Father, right? Because Jesus has been talking to him about the Father. And so this is kind of an indirect, I think it's kind of direct because Jesus is there and they're in each other, but in a way it's indirect because the Father's not actually in the room in the fuller sense. And apparently he just wasn't content with this kind of knowledge of the Father. He, he wanted a visible manifestation of the Father's presence to sustain his faith, to build him up in this moment to convince him that what Jesus was saying is true. You talk about doubt. I don't know who was the bigger doubter here, Thomas or Philip. Well, you're talking about the Father and going to his place and preparing a place. That's all wonderful. That sounds Jim Dandy great. I, I can't wait for that. But I tell you what would really help is uh, could you just maybe invite him to come down and hang out with us for a little bit? 
Of course, they'd be consumed and destroyed because His glory is too magnificent to look upon. In this form it is. But He's just not content with Jesus' declaration, you see me, you see Him. He says, well, that's not enough. We actually want to see Him. Hey, even Moses got to see Him in a sense, His backside. Well, I think we're kind of greater than Moses, aren't we? Why can't we see Him? Boy, if, if, if you reveal Him to us in that way, that'll be enough. Our faith, I'll tell you what, it'll be top flight. We'll be good to go. No, it won't. He, he tells him that if you can show us the Father, we'll be satisfied and that'll be enough. Now, I tell you, Philip's petition here is reminiscent of Matthew 12, where the scribes and Pharisees demand a sign from Jesus. It's not at the same level, but it, it reminds me of that time where, hey, you want to prove to us that you're the Messiah and you're from God and you're God and all that? Just work out some miracles in front of us and heck, we'll believe. They kind of put Jesus to the test over there in Matthew 12. And the Lord rebuked them harshly. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except that of the prophet Jonah. Verse 39 of chapter 12, Matthew, he's referring to being buried and risen. Jonah went down into the fish and came out. Now the scribes and Pharisees had evil intentions. Philip did not. Philip was not acting like a scribe or Pharisee who was trying to trap Jesus, get him in trouble, betray him or any of that. He wasn't doing that. He was a real believer who lacked faith and confidence in Jesus' promises at this particular moment. I'm guilty of that at times. I know you are as well, and if you're not admitting it, you need to. Melanchthon, and Melanchthon, he was a, he was a ministry partner with Martin Luther, and his, his name's Philip, by the way. Just can't escape us. Philip Melanchthon suggests that that. Philip, here in this text, was simply expressing the natural wish of man in every age. <laughs> it's like, where do you guys come up with this stuff? He says, quote, men everywhere feel an inward craving to see God, right? I crave chalupas at Taco Bell I, and other food items. When I was a sinner, I craved pleasure and I don't know where... I like Melanchthon, but uh, no. It's hard for me to reconcile his position, his view, with passages that clearly state that natural men want nothing to do with God. Romans 3.11, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. This isn't like, well, there's some out there that are seeking Him, the better ones. No one. That's a broad brush. There's no one out there in the natural state and their fallenness who seeks God. So I don't know how he can say uh, men everywhere feel an inward craving to see God. I think he's deviated from Scripture with this view. I don't think that's Philip's issue. Calvin called Philip's petition absurd. <laughs> it's, it's absurd. Beard, you know, and just serious. It's absurd. He also pointed out how all believers do the exact same, exact same thing at times? Calvin did. He wrote, We profess to be earnest in seeking God, and when He presents Himself before our eyes, we are blind. <laughs> Guilty. Something's going on in your life, and it's so bad, and God has revealed Himself to you and His promises, and you're like, duh. You can't see it. You can't hear it. Isn't that what's going on at the supper table? That's right on the money right there. He presents, him before our, he presents Himself before our eyes and we are blind. We can't see what He's doing that moment. We can't see or understand or comprehend what He has clearly said to us. I think that's more accurate. It's not about this heart cry to, to see God. That doesn't exist in dead sinners. It didn't exist in me for 30 years. Let's take a look at Jesus' response to Philip in verses 9 through 11, of course it's 9-11, right? Throw that in there real quick. This is the rest of the section. A little bit longer section here, I'll just read it. And this is, this is, uh, this made me sad, but it made me laugh too, because Jesus' response. Jesus says to him, 
Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How This is it. How can you say, show us the Father? How can you say this to me? How can you say this? And then he says this, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. In other words, what I say are the words of the Father. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now this is a rebuke. It's not a harsh rebuke like in Matthew 12 with the scribes and Pharisees. That was a harsh rebuke. This is not a harsh rebuke. It is a rebuke, though, for his faithless request, and not just to him, but to the rest of the disciples, for their wavering faith. You see, these men believed in Jesus, but they went back and forth at certain times, like at the supper table here. So it's a rebuke, like... You've been with me for three years. I've told you who I am. I've revealed to you who I am through countless miracles and through revelation in these things. How can you possibly say, show us the Father now? You've already seen Him, in a sense, met Him. And Jesus here reaffirms His oneness with the Father and deity four more times. He already did it a little earlier. Now he does it four more times consecutively. First example, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 9. Man, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to see God? You're seeing God. You want to hear from God? You're hearing from God. Verse 9. Second example, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Verse 10. He's in me, I'm in Him. I'm here, He's here. Third example, the Father who dwells in me does His works. The idea of dwelling in Jesus is not like Jesus was possessed by the Father's Spirit. It simply means that we are one in our divinity. He is in me. And the words that I have spoken to you, And not to mention the words that I've spoken to you for three years, but all the miracles I've performed. Those are His words and His miracles. I simply came to execute His plan and do what He empowered me to do, what He commanded me to do. One more affirmation, the fourth. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. This is a repeat of verse 10. He does it in verse 11 here. I mean, how many more times... Does he have to say it? Four times in a row. Earlier he said it once. Here he says it four times. In a sense, he's doing all that he can here verbally to affirm who he is and convince them. Verse 11, he reminds the disciples of his supernatural works, his miracles. What is the purpose of these miracles? Just to show compassion and do healings and these things? Well, that's certainly part of it, but not all of it. They testify to His divine personhood. They prove that He is in the Father and the Father is in Him. They prove that He is God. They prove that He came from heaven. They prove the incarnation. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Every miracle He did was strategic in proving who He said He is. If you're going to go around and make claims that you're God, you better have God power and do things that only God can do. Stop storms, walk on water. I've tried that a few times. It doesn't work. You've got to get going really fast, then you just take two steps and you're in. That doesn't work. You can't do it. There's things that we cannot do. You're going to claim to be God. You better do things that only God can do. And Jesus did so many that you, there's not enough books in the world to list them all. It says at the end of John, I think he's using hyperbole, but the point is he did so many miracles to prove that he's God, it just can't even be counted. All the time he was doing them. John highlights a handful. The other Gospels present many more miracles. All of those miracles testify to his divine personhood. 
Each one screams from the top of a high building that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. This is what he's saying to them. I've revealed the Father to you guys. I am the revelation of the Father. Here's my paraphrase of 9 through 11. I have been with you for three years, Philip, but you still don't know who I am? How can this be? How can you possibly ask me to show you the Father at this point? After all this time, after all this teaching, after all these miracles, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Is it because you don't believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Because Jesus puts him to the test. Maybe this is a matter of, because I revealed it to you, maybe this is a matter of you just don't believe it. He says, my paraphrase, you need to realize that I do not speak on my own authority, for it is the Father who dwells in me and the Father who does His works and speaks His truth through me. Paraphrase, the works I perform prove that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe on account of these works. Look, if you're having a hard time, Philip, with believing what I'm saying, I want you to focus and look back throughout the last three years. Just imagine in your mind's eye the last three years all the miracles that I've done, the lepers I've healed, the storm that I see, you know, calmed, uh, the, the guy that I uh, cast a legion of demons out, the people that I fed, 5,000 men one time, 4,000 men in the Decapolis later, probably about 30,000, 40,000 people. I just want you to think about all the things I've done which prove my personhood, my divinity. And if you're having a hard time accepting my testimony right now, my word right now, I want you to focus back on what I've done and believe on account of those works. Those works will convince you. They already have, but for some reason here, you're wavering. This is what Jesus is saying. There's such a great principle truth in it for us that when we're in calamity and we're wavering, we need to look back at what Christ has said and done, right? This is what he's saying. Look back, look back, look back, look at what I've done. If you're having trouble realizing and resting in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, you need to look back through your life and see the examples of His faithfulness. They'll help to bolster you in that moment, right? I have often done that where I've been kind of worried about what's to come, and, and then I immediately remember what He's done in the past, and then I say to myself, I have nothing to worry about. He has always taken care of me. He has never not provided for me. He has never not meet, met my needs our needs as a family. He's never let us down. And the moments where the supply didn't come in were some of the greatest teaching moments in my life. The greatest lessons I've ever learned as a Christian have been through trial, not through comfort and ease. Trial is a forge, you know, and it shapes us and it teaches us. We're not going to rely on Christ if things are going easy, not the way we should. But when calamity strikes, all of a sudden we start clinging to Him in a way that we haven't in a long time or ever. Amen? There's a wonderful passage that talks about this petition this man is making to God. And he's tell, he tells God in this, I think it's in a psalm, he says, Don't make me a pauper because then I'll steal and dishonor your name. But don't give me so much that I forget you. The idea of keep me in the middle, keep me in the balance where I'm reliant on you at all times. Because if I become wealthy, I'm going to act like I don't need you and I'm going to forget about you. If I'm a pauper, I'm going to start stealing and dishonor you. That's such wisdom in that request. Every one of us should make that request. Well, I don't want to be this or that. I want to be right there depending on you at all times. And quite frankly, what it takes to get us there and to keep us there is difficulty in life. Difficulty. Challenge. I'll tell you, the Gospel of John makes several things very clear, right? Several key truths, very clear. And the Gospel of John is, is very specific in, in, in why it was written and its target. And it makes several things lucidly clear, but there is one particular truth that rises above all the rest. Can you guess what it is? Jesus is God. 
That is, that is the pinnacle truth of this gospel. And that is the pinnacle truth of Scripture. Yes, He's the Savior and all that, but He is God. He is God. J. Oswald Sanders wrote, The deity of Christ is the key doctrine of the Scriptures. Reject it, and the Bible becomes a jumble of words without any unifying theme. Accept it, and the Bible becomes an intelligible and ordered revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Closing. We live in a um, polytheistic, many gods, works-based, earning sort of society and culture, right? America is, is a wonderful nation because of the freedoms that we have, but because of the freedoms we have, we can worship any deity we want. We can worship multiple deities. We can create deities. You know, there, there, there's been many, many religions that were birthed right here in America. Jehovah Witnessism was birthed here, Mormonism, Christian science. There's a whole plethora of cults that came through. Pentecostalism came through the Azusa Street revivals, alleged revivals in 1906. If you've never known how old Pentecostalism, it's not ancient. It's been around since 1906. Anything that's that new always causes me to go, hmm, Right? Not just that, but America is, is the land of the free, home of the brave, whatever you want to call it, and it affords people a lot of latitude and freedom on religion, so much so to a fault, I think. But then the minute you begin to control that, you become like what we fled from, England, Europe. But no doubt we live in a polytheistic, works-based, earning kind of society with many gods and many, 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 I'm just trying to add as many many's as I can without saying many too much, but many, 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 many so-called paths to heaven. In America, it's, it's almost as if everyone has their own path to heaven, right? Everyone actually here, I think most people think they're going to heaven. In fact, most people think they're going to heaven because they're American, because Americans go to heaven. Seriously, I'm born here, I go to heaven. Thank God I wasn't born in Saudi Arabia. People here are bizarre. They think that I'm American, which means I'm Christian, which means I'm going to heaven. I'm so glad I was born here. Total pagan, though. But people think that here. We have a zillion gods. I think there's more religions and more idols and gods and more paths to heaven in this nation than in any, all the other nations combined. Was it the First Amendment that gives us the freedom of religion? <laughs> Look at what it's resulted in. It wasn't like this at one time. Now with those pilgrims and Puritans. But it's become this. Many, many paths to heaven. Many, many gods and many paths to heaven. That's what America is known for. And Jesus, however, is not simply one God or one path among many. He is, I am. And the only path to heaven. Because no one comes to the Father except through Him. He's made it as clear as possible. Think of the context in which he spoke these words. Rome is controlling Israel. Rome has a pantheon of gods. Too many Roman gods to list. I'd, I'd just bore you to death with all the different names. He says this in a polytheistic culture with many paths to heaven. <laughs> I'm not sure if this was a shocking truth to these disciples, but it is a shocking truth nonetheless. If he just said this with 11 Romans around the table, he wouldn't have gotten out of the room. He'd have been speared. He is, I am, and he is the only path.
path. He's not one way. He's not one truth. He's not one life. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. He's the only path. And this is the promise of the right path. This is the promise of the right path in the text. It's in verse 6. If we have repented and put our trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we are on the right path. And our lives will be characterized by obedience, holiness, purity, service, and so on. We will bear the fruits of the Spirit. And I say these things because I can get caught up in using the language or lingo of easy believism. Just, just, believe in, just repent of your unbelief and believe in Jesus and you're good to go. And that is truth. But we must have the Holy Spirit. Our lives must bear fruit. Because how many people have you met that say they believe, but their lives have no fruit and all that? What are you supposed to tell them? They're okay? No, they're not okay. They haven't been regenerated. Something's happened. Something hasn't happened. We're on the right path if we're in Jesus by grace through faith, and our lives are characterized by the things Scripture says a true believer's life will be characterized by. Fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Why? Because this Spirit, these are the fruits of the Spirit. Why will we bear these fruits? Because the Spirit lives in us. And I would just say to you, be comforted by the fact that God has provided for you the right path to Himself through Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ and you have the Spirit and you're bearing these fruits... You have no reason to believe otherwise about yourself. And you need to be comforted by the fact that God not only showed you the right path through Jesus Christ, but that He alone put you on it and that He alone will keep you on it. In other words, you didn't put yourself on the path and you sure as heck aren't going to keep yourself on it. R.C. Sproul nailed it when he said, if we could lose our salvation, we would. God revealed the path to you, God enabled you to get on that path, and God will keep you on that path. He's sovereign over your salvation. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. What He began in you, He will carry all the way through. In other words, you'll mess around on the path a little bit. You'll get confused like these guys, but you won't deviate and leave it. It's almost like when you go bowling with kids and they put those little stopper things up, 50 years old, I still use them. It's the only way I can get the ball down there. But your, the idea is to keep your ball from going off into the other lane or into the gutter. And you put those rails up and your ball can do pinball all the way down there and actually hit something. But think of God in the Holy Spirit being those bumpers that come up to keep you moving toward heaven toward His presence. He does that for us. He reveals the path, puts us on the path, and keeps us on the path. And to me, that just brings such comfort in knowing that He's done that for me. I, I'm comforted by the reality of where I'm going because of what God has done for me. This promise is meant to bring us peace and comfort. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, God not only provides a way of salvation for us, He brings us into it. Wow. And yet, if we have not repented and put our trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, if we are depending on our works and self-righteousness or on science or on some phony, baloney, man-made deity, we are on the broad road to destruction. We are headed for hell. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. I'll extend that. If we make a profession that we believe in Christ, but we don't actually live as a Christian, there's something defective about that profession and faith. We have no assurance or guarantee that we're actually in the true faith and in Christ. Someone once said, no one goes to heaven without practical holiness, and I believe that. If you are a true Believer, you will pursue purity, holiness, you will war with your flesh, you will battle temptation, you will 
repent when you need to repent. You will confess your sins. You will live in a cycle of that. If you realize this about yourself, you desire to be rescued off this broad road, this highway, literal highway to hell, the Holy Spirit is obviously working in you. Because we don't come to these realizations on our own. We just simply don't. Repent and believe the gospel. Come to the altar. What's the altar? It's the cross. Come to the cross and put your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. I know I sound like a broken record when I say this, but I don't really care. No, you end every sermon the same way, Phil. Well, let's not forget the mission statement and purpose of this gospel. These things have been recorded that you might believe. This gospel is all about evangelism. So I say believe that Jesus lived for your righteousness. Believe that He died to pay your sin debt. And your sin debt was so great that it required the absolute slaughter and death of a perfect person, Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. Believe that. Believe that He was buried to settle your account with God. Believe that He rose from the grave three days later. This isn't just a biblical fact. It's a historical fact. Believe that He did these things for you. Believe that He conquered sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. You believe that, the Spirit's at work in you, you'll begin to bear fruit. You probably already have been. God's already working in your life. You continue to follow Him and stay on that path. You will.